This is Chapter 73 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a crime fiction novel that started out as a nonfiction book about the early days of Wall Street. We talk to the aptly named Karen Slaughter about her latest suspenseful thriller, and we'll finish up with a psychological thriller that we stayed up all night to read. The Devil's Half Mile isn't the book Patty Hirsch started out writing. He tells me he totally intended this book to be a history book and not a police procedural. What I really wanted to write was a history of the New York Stock Exchange. You know, I'm a, I'm a full-time journalist. I'd written a nonfiction book about how the markets work, and I wanted to write a book about how a financial market is created out of whole cloth. And I, I found out that America's first financial crisis actually happened in 1793. And uh, I thought, well, after the stock exchange was created immediately after that financial crisis, this would be a great history to write, you know, this market credit out of whole cloth. And so I was doing a bunch of research and I was reading letters between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and all this kind of, you know, really intrinsically interesting stuff. And then I realized that if you were a reader, it would actually be really, really boring. <laughs> and actually, as time went on for me, I find it get I find it getting pretty boring as well. So I decided, well, you know, just to keep my hand in, because I wasn't doing any writing, I'll just write a little murder into the narrative, just for kicks, you know. And frankly, the murder became just way more fun than the uh, the history did. So why don't you tell us about this little murder? Well, what we have is a an Irish-American uh, student, actually he's, he's a, a lawyer, just graduated from university, who spent a bunch of time in Ireland studying and actually getting some ex- valuable experience with the Paris police. His father killed himself, or apparently killed himself, in this financial panic. Everybody assumed that he'd uh, lost his shirt, like a lot of other people, and he was found hanging in his hallway. But uh, our hero, Justy Flanagan, who spent this time in Ireland uh, at university studying law and studying criminology, realizes that his father couldn't have killed himself and must have been murdered. So he's returned to New York to find out who done it and why. You really capture the essence of the city back then in all its smelly and grossness, which is what really stood out to me. (laughs) What kind of research did you do for those little details? You know, my favorite piece of research that I did was, I basically stumbled into the Library of Congress. I mean, not literally, I I stumbled into it online. And there are all sorts of accounts there of the way New York and America used to be, because uh, uh, firstly, there were a lot of letters that people wrote to each other. But the most fascinating thing were the travelogues. You had people that would travel for months, you know, in Boston, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, in New York, and around the eastern seaboard. And they would come from, from France and from England and sometimes other parts of the United States. And they would write about these their, their travels, and they would be published in gazettes and magazines. And they had a, a, a real texture. You know, they would actually reflect the way that people dressed, the way that uh, life was different, you know, in, in different parts of the United States. Life was different in America to, it was in, to the way it was in Britain. And they would detail these differences. And some of the, the details were just, you know, remarkable. I mean, right down to, you know, what type of underwear people wore. I mean, it was it was fascinating. So that was the that was the best piece of research that I did. Certainly the most interesting. It's also interesting too that the New York City in your story, New Yorkers sounded a lot more like you than they do me. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they would have back then, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't so long since New York was basically an English city. I mean, and this is one of the fascinating things I find is that you know a lot of people think of you know New York, it's it's America, and you know when America is is uh, America wins wins the re- uh, the Revolutionary War, you know York New York becomes American. Well, it wasn't American before. It was essentially a British city. It really only had any kind of American occupation, as to say, by the Continental Forces for a very short period of time. And if you think about it, the the people in New York didn't all leave. I mean, they were all 
they were basically British. Um, many of them were, most of them were from England, or a large part, part of them were from England. And certainly the, uh, the social hierarchy and the political hierarchy was generally English. They didn't all up sticks and leave whenever the Revolutionary War uh, was, uh, was lost by the British. The, the army went away and, you know, some of the senior administrators would have left. But all of the, most of the people, the merchants and the, the people who were powerful in politics and, and on the social front would have stayed. So it, was, it remained an English city. And, you know, there were obviously a lot of Irish there and a lot of people from other or other nations. But I think that the way people spoke would have been much more me than you. Yes. And you really touch on, too, in the book, the the experience that the Irish people had here in the city. Yeah, you know, one of the things that struck me was that I, I put my I, I tried to be as empathetic as possible with uh, with my Irish forebears. You know, they must have sat there in Ireland looking across the sea. And let's not forget that Ireland had had been brutally subdued by the British, by the English for, for centuries at this point. And, you know, really, really brutal oppression. And they must have looked across the Atlantic and saw what the Americans had done and thought, wow, these guys have got it figured out. They've, you know, beaten the king. They've thrown out the king's army. Let's go over there. And they would have gone across, and I think they would have found very quickly that they would have just switched one kind of oppression for another. Because, as I say, New York was an English city with all of those um, prejudices in place. The English regarded uh, the Irish as subhuman. They were usually depicted as apes in in cartoons of the time. Uh, Because they were Catholic, for for the most part, they were banned from universities, so higher education. They were also generally discriminated against socially and politically, so they wouldn't have had any opportunity to, to rise up through the ranks, as it were, until, of course, you hit the 1860s whenever there was almost a majority of Irish in the city and they were able to kind of take over politically. Yeah, and and that's really when the tides turned here in the city. Yeah, absolutely. As a reader, I have to thank you for the glossary that uh, accompanies your book. Because you well, really I'm glad you like the look. <laughs> people are kind of people are kind of torn on that. Some people are like, yeah, I, I could figure it out, and other people are like, I was completely lost until I got to the end, and then I had to reread the book again. <laughs> yeah, maybe it should have been in the beginning of the book, but it's it's you you do make it easy from the context in which you use the words to to figure it out. But there really was some colorful language that's fallen out of style. Yeah, you know, some great words. You know, I um, I think uh, a lot of a lot of words for you know sexual activity. So let's not go into those on the air, <laughs> no. but. Um, <laughs> But uh, a lot of, you know, fantastic words that kind of, uh, that a lot of words for drinking, which I really, I think my favorite phrase was to suck the monkey, which is means to go out and get drunk. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with slang. And now were these terms that you came across in all those letters that you were reading in between people or from other resources of the time? Actually, mainly from other resources of the time, there were a couple of very interesting uh, dictionaries that people wrote, uh, sort of dictionaries of urban slang uh, that were wrote, uh, that were written in America and in London. And I kind of combined those because a lot of the London underworld, of course, was uh, was Irish Catholic as well for the same reason. Uh, you know, the, the Irish, uh, for the same reason that it is now, you know, the Irish spent a lot of time in the capital of, of England because of the... Uh, there was very little work to do in Ireland, so they went to England for jobs and, and spent a lot of time in London. So there was a, a great um, uh, dictionary of urban slang, of, of underworld slang, that I got. Uh, f- a man wrote called Francis Groves wrote that in England. And then I stumbled on a, uh, a dictionary of American underworld slang, of New York underworld slang. Um, I guess it was a little, it's kind of written around the early 1820s, I believe. Um, rather than the the period that I was uh, I was writing about, but I figured not much would have changed in twenty years, so I borrowed liberally from those two sources. 
And some notable names from the era do make cameos in your book, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr. How did you decide which real people to include in this fictional story of yours? Well, initially, I had a lot more real people, obviously, because I was writing a history. And then I realized that, you know, because when when you sort of make the switch into fiction, you've got a real danger of, of writing these people into situations uh, that they weren't in, that, that people would get upset about, that historians would get upset about. But more importantly, you, you, you would need to characterize these people in, in a certain way. And I really didn't want to... You know, if I got these people involved in a murder or a financial scandal or something, it might not be, you know, particularly flattering to them. So I really kind of backed away from them and stripped the real people out and left it really to uh, to fictional characters. But yes, Alexander Hamilton is there purely because, you know, he was really his conversation with Thomas Jefferson was a really important conversation about the way uh, rules were being made at the time. There was a, this debate that, we're, we're, interestingly enough, we're seeing today about regulation and rules. And on on Jefferson's side, the, the argument was, well, you know, we're all responsible human beings. We should really be allowed to regulate ourselves. Whereas Hamilton was saying, look, you know, when fear and greed are involved, and there's large amounts of money swelling around, you, self-regulation doesn't really work because all bets kind of go out the window. So you need to put in strong rules around uh, whether ever anything, whether it be a financial market or just a regular market, you know, whatever it is, our, our human behavior needs to be contained in some way. So I really wanted to bring out the essence of, of that conversation, which is why I included him in the narrative. And I do get the sense from reading the book that you don't think the practices on Wall Street have changed all that much since those conversations were first being had. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think we still have the same thing, you know, fear and greed rule the markets today, just as they ruled the markets back then large amounts of money swills around the system. And when you have those that combination together, it can be very, very toxic if you don't have a, a good set of rules, a good set of boundaries, not a, not a particularly, not, not a not huge, not thousands and thousands of rules like we have in the Dodd-Frank Act right now. But, you know, s- simple rules that just kind of give us boundaries to work in and rules that are, you know, enforced, rigorously enforced. I think that, you know, that was the argument that Hamilton was making back then for regulation. And I think that that's the argument that sensible people are making today about regulation. So now that you've gotten a chance to tell this story, do you plan on keep writing fiction? Yes, I do. In fact, uh, you know, when when the book was commissioned, uh, Macmillan, my publisher in the US, actually commissioned two books. So I wrote, uh, I've just written the second one. It's hopefully going to come out this time next year. And um, I'm pitching books three and four. So I'm looking at a I'm looking at a 10 book series. So I'm kind of on this I'm on this I'm on this train right now. I, right now, I can't get off until I'm kicked <laughs> off. So yes, I continued. I, I intend to continue to keep going. So we'll be seeing more or reading more about Justy then. We'll be reading more about Justy, more about Kerry, more about Lars. Yes. Well, I look forward to that. The book is The Devil's Half Mile. We've been talking with Patty Hirsch. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks very much for having me. Best-selling thriller writer Karen Slaughter examines the sometimes fraught relationship between mothers and daughters in her new book, Pieces of Her. She tells our Pat Farnack more. What made you take up the mother-daughter dynamic? Well, you know, I had been writing for a while about father-daughter relationships, and I realized I was doing it because they're really easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of three girls, and my dad thinks we're all perfect. <laughs> uh, we have great relationships with him, and uh, we've always been daddy's girls. But, you know, mother-daughter relationships tend to be a little more fraught and difficult. And the line that I was really thinking about when I decided to do this is, 
uh, in the first part of the book when Laura, the, the mother, and Andy, the daughter, are having breakfast together, and Andy thinks it's a truth universally understood that your mother can say to you, your hair looks good, and what you hear is your hair has looked bad every day until now. <laughs> and I think that's just like a typical mother-daughter interaction. You know, there's always this sort of weird undertone. So I, I really wanted to write about that, and I wanted to write about the generational differences between opportunities for women in their 30s and the opportunities that women in their 50s didn't have when they were that age. On the c- cover of the book, it says, um, Mother, Hero, Liar, Killer. That sort of says it all about your story. Were you thinking at all of Patty Hearst? You know, I was a little bit because I just have always been fascinated by that story ever since I heard about Stockholm Syndrome when I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And I, I read about Patty Hearst around the same time I read about Charles Manson. And then, yes. of course, that got me into Anne Rule. And once you start reading Anne Rule, you have to read everything she's ever written and <laughs> The Stranger Beside Me. And, you know, I was just fascinated by people who give up their autonomy. Yeah. Uh, and it, the, the one thing about them is they all think that they're the ones who have figured out life and everybody else is stupid. And I learned uh, pretty early on when I was a kid that if that's what I was thinking, maybe it wasn't everybody else, maybe it was me. <laughs> and and what made you also introduce uh, a con man? I guess that goes hand in hand with reading about the Symbionese Liberation Army and, and all of that. Or, or were you maybe going off in a different direction to address domestic violence or, or both? Well, it was a little bit of both. You know, very rarely do you have a con man who wants to help people. Uh, Generally, he's doing it. One of the big perks of being a con man is he gets to have sex with whoever he wants. You know, you don't see a lot of women who are con women, and the whole uh, point of them being charismatic leaders is so that they can have sex with everybody who's following them. Uh, That's very rare. But I also think there's an element of domestic violence. You know, a lot of women who are taken in by these um, con men are uh, given drugs and they're, you know, they're, they're searching for something that is missing from their lives. And a great con is to figure out what that thing is that's missing and give it to them, but only temporarily, you know, because if you keep giving it to them, then they'll be fulfilled and they'll go away. Uh, But if you dole it out just periodically, then that keeps them hooked. It was also stark how the daughter, Andy, is seemingly so unlike her mom, the, the way she freezes all the time. And by contrast, her mother in, I guess, it's is it, is it the first scene in the book where the mother reacts mm-hmm. uh, to a maniac in a mall and her daughter just freezes? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I don't know necessarily that it's genetic because my sister is a freezer and mm-hmm. I'm a, a fleer and my <laughs> older sister is a fighter. So <laughs> I think it's just... Uh, you know, I, a lot of it boils down to uh, nurture, I think. And for me, I think it was really interesting to write that scene because it, they are in a shopping mall, which is a very familiar thing, and then a really horrible thing happens. And Laura, the mother, reacts in a way that Andy would not ever expect because mm-hmm. Andy thinks I'm a lot like my mom. You know, I'm yeah. quiet, but, you know, she's she can be gregarious when she needs to and you know, this is the person I'm striving to be. And then suddenly bad stuff starts happening and her mom turns into someone who very who could be a criminal, you know, just mm-hmm. who has this knowledge of 
how to handle a situation that a PTA mom who so dresses for Andy's Wuthering Heights themed birthday party <laughs> is capable of doing these sorts of things is just shocking. Also, her mother is a cancer survivor, and that's rather recent. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect, Andy certainly doesn't expect that her cancer survivor mom would be so fierce and the opposite of, of weak. Exactly. Well, anyone who's been around a cancer survivor knows that they're pretty strong. You know, a lot of it is psychological, I think, because I did, I talked to people who are in self-defense or who have gone through boot camp or the police academy. I spoke with them, you know, what, what are the things that make you capable of doing this? I mean, I'm always fascinated by police officers because everybody's running away and the cop's job is to run straight into the, the bad thing. And, you know, it really is partly mind over matter. And another part is just to have that type of personality where you can do that. You know, not everybody could be a police officer. It's a really takes a lot of specialized skills to be able to do that. And it's the same with how Laura responds. You know, that's the big mystery here is how did she learn how to do this? Where was this training taking place and honestly you know who is this person that's who andrea is is that's the big question andrea is asking is wow this was my mom and now she's kind of blown the lid off everything i thought i knew about her and the rest of the book is andy's quest to figure that out of course while being chased by bad people because this is a thriller after all (laughs) well hollywood has has in quotes discovered you now it's really exciting so it's been optioned by made up stories which is uh one of the producers on big little lies on hbo which was i was a huge fan of uh the, the woman who Runs the company, also worked on Wild. Uh, so she's got a really interesting catalog of things she's worked on. And the director who signed on, Leslie Linka Gladder, has worked on NYPD Blue and Mad Men and Homeland and all, all of my favorite shows in the world. Yeah. So it's really a fantastic opportunity. The writer has worked on House of Cards and Homeland, and she's great. So I'm really excited about it. You know, it's uh, it's a great place to be right now where suddenly Hollywood's very interested in telling women's stories. Nothing like starting at the bottom. Goodness, you're starting at the top with the uh, creme de la creme. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really lucky. You know, it's, it's a good time, I guess, to be writing books like this, but I've been doing it for a really long time, too. Do you think it's the t- the times we find ourselves in, or do you think y- you've finally punched through because your books have been uh, selling briskly and uh, people have been talking about you for years? It is a, a, a sea change, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people who create entertainment realize that superhero movies are great, but women want to see female superheroes, too. They don't want to just be the, the accessories. And I think part of a generational shift, too. And, yeah. and that's something I was touching on in the book. You know, Andrea, she's 30 years old, and she has so many choices about what she can do with her life that she doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a problem that kids have today, you know, because they're told you can be anything. And they're terrified of making the wrong choice. But I don't know your age group, but when I was growing up, we weren't told that, that we could be anything. We were told, hey, maybe you'll get married uh, and, and before you're out of college and you can start your family, or maybe you could be a secretary or a dental hygienist. You know, it was a very mm-hmm. limited scope of things that we could have done. And when will we see any of these projects on the big or little screen? 
Well, it just depends on how things line up. Um, You know, this is Hollywood, so it could crap out at any minute, uh, (laughs) but uh, hopefully within the next year or so. I have a feeling it is not going to crap out at all. I think it's going to be big. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us. We've been talking with uh, Karen Slaughter about her new book, Pieces of Her. So good. In her new book, Never World Wake, Marisha Pessel creates an in-between world where time stands still and fears become physical. It's the best-selling author's first foray into young adult literature. But if you ask me, anyone who likes psychological thrillers will enjoy this book. I spoke to her about her process and the book within a book. I stayed up way past my bedtime to finish reading this book of yours, Never World Wake. Oh, thank you. And I know I could tell readers what it's about, but I think they'd rather hear it in your own words. So why don't you tell us? Um, of course. Well, it's a, I would describe it as a claustrophobic psychological thriller about five former friends who are trying to solve a murder mystery, basically, while being trapped in time. That's really the nutshell of it. Um It really started as a side project, and I um, was obviously working on my next adult novel, and um, I had this little idea about, um, you know, this uh, more of a young adult novel, and um, so it really just started working on that on the side. And even though this is a a YA book, and the main characters are teenagers, and it's right after, you know, that in-between time uh, after their freshman year of college... The idea that we don't really know the people who we call our best friends kind of transcends how, however old you are. Absolutely. I was always interested in the, the layers of um, human psychology. And really, the amazing thing about being human is that you ne- can never get to the bottom of the human being as to like their ultimate truth, because personality is so determinant on place and circumstance and moment and whether or not someone has had a full meal so, or a good night's sleep. So um, I was interested in this idea of being trapped and stuck somewhere. I was obviously um, inspired a little bit by Agatha Christie, who growing up was one of my favorite authors and still remains one of my cornerstones um, of inspiration even today. Um, because she, of course, really made famous the conceit of you know these strangers all convening in a certain location and are trapped in some way, unable to leave, um, whether it's from a thunderstorm or, or the inspector making sure that none of the potential suspects leave the premises. So I loved that idea of, you know, the, these captive people um, imprisoned and, um, and what that means in terms of um, freeing themselves. And of course, in my book, Never World Wake, they have to vote um, at the end of every wake as to um, who can return to a normal life, who can go back to a normal time frame, and, um, and the rest of them. There can only be one survivor, and the rest of them um, really have to go on to the next dimension, whatever that happens to be, um, beyond death. So um, the, I, I, it was really a question of psychology a little bit for me as to will these human beings rise to the occasion and come together when um, – there's no real guarantee that they can go on to life. And if you don't have the idea of your continued existence, um, what will motivate you to do the right thing? And it's kind of a moral question. And, um, and so I assembled these characters all from very like disparate 
backgrounds. And I really would have sort of wanted to, <laughs> wanted to see if they would sink or swim. And is that really where this idea for the Neverworld came from? Or did, did that start somewhere else? It really was the beginning. Yes, that was always part of the idea, I, this idea of being trapped. And um, yes, it was, it was, I wanted to have, um, I mean, my other two books, Special Topics in Calamity Physics and Night Film are really these sprawling books. And um, my next adult novel is definitely sprawling. So I wanted to write um, something on a tighter canvas, a sort of sonata of people, um, a little bit of chamber music, you know, keeping myself to... um, fewer tangents and fewer twists. Um, but, but the twists, of course, like, you know, there are a lot of twists and turns on Neverworld, but just keeping myself to that tighter um, book, which ended up being, I think it's like 350 pages, which I was, <laughs> I was very excited about that I achieved something that was less than 500 pages. I did read it in one go. So it's, oh, it's definitely yes, that kind of I wanted of book. to see if I could create something that where someone couldn't get up out of their um, off the couch with the book. So that was part of my goal. So I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> so one of the, the, the cool things that you've done with this book is that it features a book within it called The Dark House at Elsewhere Bend, which yes. is central to the story. So which came first, the actual book itself or the book within the book? Or did they kind of just spring up together? Um, the book within the book was always part of, you know, one of the characters, Martha's reality. And um, if you've read my previous book, Night Film, it seems like, as, as another interviewer pointed out on my past book tour, it's like I do like um, sort of secret works of art and a secret underground culture within my books. Like Night Film had a lot of underground movies and this underground director and um, and The Dark House at Elsewhere Bend um, was created by like Gossamer Madwick and he really died in obscurity having written this masterpiece that never really was published, but it was mimeographed um, and handed um, from reader to reader, really in secret, and you could find it suddenly on a park bench beside you, and having no understanding of who just put it there. Um, so this sort of like secret book that changed people's lives, and um, has a really, really deep um, mythical culture and historical background to it. And um, and I really wanted you know Martha's character to be within that world. And within that fandom, and then, of course, um, it has reverberations through the Neverworld, as the reader will find out. And you also work in lyrics for songs that belong to made-up soundtrack albums. There's a musical, and I guess this all goes to your underground kind of cultural thing. But honestly, that's some creative firepower on your part. Some people don't even have one book in them, and you have all this output. It's it's crazy. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, I always say it's a, you know, creativity is a muscle, like, you know, training to be a, a long distance runner. I mean, if you're always thinking as I am, because it's my job, you know, what the story is, what the character is, what's the drama, what is someone trying to, you know, what will someone put their life on the line for? You just automatically start thinking of these things and getting really excited and, try, you know, weaving them all together and finding the, um, you know, the sort of patterns um, where they where they tie together, and um, sometimes you don't really know how they're going to tie it together, and you just sort of trust that you'll figure it out. And then sometimes you really like map map things, you know, very specifically. So it's kind of a 
it's a mix of those two techniques. How do you keep track of all your ideas? Do you write them down? Do you keep a notebook by you? Is it just index cards taped to the walls? Yes, I do. I have a very, um, very uh, dense notebook. Um, you know, some books require like multiple notebooks um, and others. It's basically your Bible. So, you know, um, you know, obviously the, just the basics of the history of the characters. I mean, obviously the more sprawling book you're writing, the more detailed these things have to be. But um, I really like the process prior to writing of conceiving the novel with just a pen and paper and a, and a blank notebook and just figuring out in a more of an even visual way how the book is going to look, who these characters are, um, doing a lot of preparation. So in my mind, it's very vivid. Um, and, you know, there's a sort of, um, once you spend all of that time in advance, there's a reality to who these people are in the situation that then the writing um, is really just a question of translating that. Um, so, yes, I, I love all of my, um, you know, kind of very tactile, like visual aids, basically, <laughs> uh, that kind of are cornerstones that help in the writing process. And this is your first YA book. How how different is it to write for teens versus adults? Uh, well, it's really been such an interesting journey to to find to answer that question. And the amazing thing is, is that there's actually no difference. Um, I really thought when I started out on this process that my young adult editor who um, really has a lot of experience in this arena would tell me like there are certain things that I can write, there's certain language that I cannot use, there's certain plot twists that I can't, um, that are too dark. And it, as it turns out, there's absolutely no subject matter or even language off limits to young adult books. And the only real difference was that she would sometimes make me visualize my young adult reader. I mean, I think she and I knew that people who had read Night Film also might find this book, so adults would read it. But um, for the teenage reader, she really had me visualize this person and just be extra vigilant as to like every word or sort of final, basically what I, you know, be very specific as to what I wanted to say. Just knowing that um, you were catching um, readers at a, at a seminal moment in their lives and um, at a moment where he or she might really be looking for answers. So what do you want to leave that person with? Um, hope or despair, um, a sense of enemy and pointlessness and meaningless in the world or a sense of magic and possibility and hope, which of course is what I, I always am going for because that's my own outlook in the world. But um, so she kind of just made me visualize my reader a little, you know, the teenage reader and just, you know, had me be very clear and stand by every word that I put on the page. But I'm actually going to take that also to my, um, that kind of philosophy to my own adult, my next adult novel, because you really want to stand by what you're putting out there. And I know this is probably a cliched question, one you've been asked a few times already on this book tour. But are we going to see Neverworld Wake on the big or small screen? Um, it has been optioned, um, but it's I'm not allowed to actually talk about it. So um, it's very exciting, and um, hopefully we'll have more news on that front very soon. But yes, it is currently being developed. 
That is very cool. And I know oh, it's yeah. not possible that for it to be 11.2 hours because that would be really, really long. But that would be a nice little tie-in for you. <laughs> oh, that's a really good idea. Yes. Well, um, yes. I know. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll um, tell the producers that and just throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Marisha, thank you so much for uh, joining us today to talk about your new book, Never World Wake. Good thank luck you, with Lisa. it. And, and, you know, it really was enjoyable. And I look forward to what you're putting out for adults the next time around. But I don't think this book, I think this book appeals to all kinds of readers. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to hear that. Yes, more news on my next book very soon. And that does it for us this week. Next time, we find out what it was like to work on an ambulance in New York City during the turbulent 1960s. I got to tell you, this one is not for the faint of heart. Follow us around on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. And feel free to email us at books at entercom.com. <laughs>